City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, producing the American Theatre Wings working in the theatre seminars. These come to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. As founders of the American Theatre Wings Antoinette Perry Tony Award and president of the wing, I'm so happy to be able to bring you these seminars. They offer a unique opportunity to hear performers, producers, playwrights, directors, designers, and a host of theatre professionals discuss the realities of working in the theatre. Since we introduced them in 1973, more than 900 of Broadway's and Off-Broadway's best have participated. The Wing, however, is more than the Tony Awards, which are proudly given in recognition of distinguished achievement in the theater every year. We are, besides that, a continually expanding organization with year-round programs dedicated to serving the theater and the community. The Wing began as a volunteer organization, and today, most of the work we are able to do is because of the volunteers who give so willingly of their time. We are a source that helps develop new audiences, and because of that, we initiated Introduction to Broadway in 1991, and since then have enabled over 70,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show many for the first time. We continue to reach out with our newest program, Theater in Schools, through which professionals like those you will meet today volunteer to go into classrooms to discuss working in the theater. This in-classroom targets every facet of the business of theater, from playwrights and directors to press agents and poster artists. And not only do we want young people to become theatergoers, but we want them to know the wide range of other job opportunities that exist in our business. We are a means of bringing the magic of theater to thousands who cannot get to the theater itself. The Wing Hospital program dates back to World War II and the stage door canteen. It continues with performers from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world volunteering their time to do nearly 100 shows each year in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and aid centers in the New York area. We are proud to be of service and happy to have a wonderful working relationship with the theatrical community and so grateful to everyone who makes what the American Theatre Wing does possible. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's panel, which is on Sideshow the production, the people that made it all possible. And now I would like to introduce Manny Eisenberg, producer, Joseph Niederlander, producer, who should be here shortly, Abby Strassler, general manager, 
Bill Evans, press agent, and our loyal and distinguished moderator, George White, president of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, and esteemed director, both here and abroad. Enjoy and learn from today's panel. Thank you, Isabel. I would like to, um, first of all, these, the, we are obviously focusing on the marvelous production of Sideshow, uh, but there is an aspect to this which has been before, which is uh, on these particular aspects of the seminar, which could be called, but we, we'd have to steal the title from option to opening. But then also, I think beyond that, is there life after opening? Um, and uh, that certainly uh, is one of the things we should talk about today. Uh, the show, as this is being uh, taped, has been open exactly two weeks uh, today. At, with wonderful reviews, so I would like to, first of all, start the first question to uh, Manny Eisenberg and say, how's it going? <laughs> broad question, George. Uh, Purposely. Artistically, I, I think it's, it's magnificent. I think it's, uh, as in, in modesty, to say that I've done a few shows on Broadway, and I feel that this is the best one. And uh, I know that might offend some other friends of mine, but uh, I'm very proud of this. And the audience that comes stands up and screams and yells, and I hope is touched by, for the reasons that we intended to do the show. Uh, financially, we struggled in the, in the preview period because Sideshow is perceived to be about Siamese twins. It isn't. It's about all of you. Uh, and that's being discovered by the audiences so that the word of mouth and the good notices and the advertising campaign which Bill is running uh, has doubled the amount of money we've been taking in and I think this week and if not this week certainly next week the show will move into profit so from an artistic point of view we're very happy from an economic point of view we are thank God and uh, and if it were not to make it, I would be equally proud of it. How many are in the cast? Uh, 22 plus 8. 22 on the stage, 8 covers, and on the studies. Uh -huh. So you've got a 30 cast. How, uh, Bill, how do you, uh, since Manny brought it up about uh, selling the show and Siamese Twins, what, what did you have to deal with and how did you structure that from, the, from day one when you, I guess it was five and a half years in mm. evolution, right? Something like that. It's a genuine uh, consumer issue. It's, it's a consumer sort of uh, uh, preconception about, and I had the same one as Manny said, well, we're going to do a musical. Now, what's it about? Siamese twins. Like, oh, you know, you have that reaction. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this particular show, uh, once you get in the door, it just opens you, it opens your heart and your head through the whole thing. And it's, it's a really terrific uh, journey but what we did on these if you can see these uh, posters the sideshow posters that we wanted to create an impression of the era of the time of a sideshow tent of a crowd looking inside a tent we now in the post opening ads are opening the curtain so behind the curtain inside the tent which we've been saying come inside the tent you're now going to see these two beautiful young women who are playing uh, Daisy and Violet Hilton why, and, why did you decide that well because if we we didn't want to there was a certain mystery we wanted to maintain 
coming up to the opening, so it wouldn't be the only issue. Because if you, if you announce that, then it's going to be every single thing is going to be only about that. So we wanted to create uh, an aura, as it were. And I think it, it was effective with, for many people. And the idea that something's going on inside there that you, you want to see. Um, and so that's where we are now. And I, I think we'll just keep opening the curtain. Um, but th these new ads, I think, are really terrific because you look at these two beautiful women and you think, oh, that's, you know, like to see them, as opposed to what you think in your head is uh, maybe some kind of grisly visual and it's anything but. Um, now, who makes those decisions? I mean, obviously, you're the lead decider on this, but how do you interact with this? Who plans this? Well, I will say, as Robert Longbottom is the director and choreographer, and he conceived this uh, project five and a half years ago. He was watching uh, late night television and watched a movie called Chained for Life, which was a horrible B-movie, which starred the real-life Hilton sisters. And so he's, his head started going then, and he put it together with Henry Krieger and Bill Russell. So he has been a major element in every step of the presentation of it, of the advertising, and, and obviously of the, what you see on the stage. So his sensibility was very uh, crucial. In this case, it's not always the case. I was going to say, isn't that unusual for him to be in advertising? And a little bit, yeah, uh -huh. because he, he is so careful and wants everything to reflect exactly what he's doing. And, and uh, Manny and he have a relationship that, that's, uh, I think, also very healthy because they share a lot of what they're after. And then we go into an ad agency and uh, we look at these things on the floor and... Uh, you never know. It's anybody's guess. Can I go all the way back? How did you establish this relationship? What, had you worked on shows or had, as How I understand, you uh, I was invited to a presentation about three years ago. Uh, and it was then titled Song of the Siamese Twins. They didn't tell me that before I got there. If they would have told me that, I wouldn't have gone. So I understand what that preconception is. I said, it's Siamese Twins. And I, I almost killed the guy who took me. I mean. <laughs> and then I heard it. It was a little bit more Dickensian in those days, and uh, I thought it was interesting. They said, would you like to produce it? And I said, no. Uh, but we did have a meeting, and we spent two and a half hours discussing it in detail. And over, I said, I won't produce it, but I'll be your friend. It's a little arrogant, but <laughs> it was, it was, uh, not arrogantly intended. Uh, and the play and the piece evolved. We did pay for two major presentations. And after the second presentation, which was uh, two years later, it took a shape that we really liked. So we said, we'll have a workshop. Uh, the pre presentation, What's the difference between yes, a presentation I, and a workshop? Uh, the presentation costs about $15,000, where you do kind of a concert. Uh, the, the performers rehearse for a couple of hours and uh, the director just has them sit there and sing and talk. The workshop is full, a, a five-week rehearsal period with minimal scenery and lighting and costumes. In, uh, in this case, we did it at a legitimate theater. We had the cooperation of the community, actually, the stagehands and everybody. Where was that? At the Richard Rogers, where we played. Right on the stage. And we, then we saw Bobby Longbottom's work, which was stunning. I think that this is, every once in a while, every two generations or so, somebody comes by that is really talented. Many people who are talented, but some people are really talented. 
like Robbins and Fossey and Michael Kidd and Michael Bennett. And this is the next one. It, irrespective of anything I say, I really believe that the musical theater has, uh, the baton is being passed and this young man will receive it. So we did the workshop and fell in love with it, uh, literally, all of us. And I suppose that's an ingredient that's necessary even in this jaded, extraordinarily exorbitant period that you have to really like it. So we really did. And a year later, we got the theater. It took a year, literally, to get a theater that we wanted. There were only two or three that we thought were appropriate. And this was the first choice. And then there we were a year later. So it's been a three-year conversation, as it were. And, uh, and the inclusion of everybody in, in artistic and financial decisions is very helpful towards a, in a production because you get real input and you have no secrets. Uh, much of what one reads about in the paper in terms of who did what and who, how much everything cost is not totally true. It's done for the self-serving uh, posing of various interests. In this case, uh, this is like bunk 12 in camp. <laughs> Everybody genuinely trusts each other and likes each other because it's been a long trip. And uh, nobody like, got out of the boat early. So it's, a, uh, it's kind of thrilling to do that. It's what it was supposed to be like. Did you come in on the workshops or afterwards what, as a general manager? After the workshop. Mm -hmm. I was working at the League with Harriet Slaughter at the time when Manny and I started to talk. So I didn't get to see the workshop, but I was pretty excited by the buzz that I had heard on the show. And when, you said, uh, when Isabel said, come in, what did you do and what do you do? Well, I handle all of the day-to-day -day is that what decisions. general manager means? Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And um, I monitor all the sales, and I monitor the payroll in the box office, and, you know, make sure... I call it like being a glorified camp counselor to continue that... That metaphor. Right? That metaphor. Well, now, also... But, but she uh, also you... cries when, when, <laughs> when she's supposed to and laughs when she's supposed to. There is a sensibility involved. In yeah, yeah no, exactly. And... And, uh, I mean, so that in, 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 in a sense that you also oversee Bill's work, too. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's yeah, not we, just the cast and it's not just no, the box an, office. Yeah, it's, a, it's overall of, of all of it. And the buzz that Abby was referring to, this workshop in the Richard Rogers Theater, there were, I believe, five performances. Uh, four in a dress rehearsal. A dress rehearsal and four performances where we invited friends and other people who were interested and there were up to i don't know how many 900 people uh i think a lot of people about, right so a lot of people in the theater saw this and responded as we did that uh, this choreographer director guy and these writers they're up to something they're really up to something and it it caused for me what became an out of town uh tryout so to speak with they used to go out of town to new haven or wherever they went and you'd have a time period before you came into New York and it could change and there'd be a buzz from Washington or wherever it was. We did, you, well, Manning will tell you that we can't uh, afford those out-of-town things with big musicals anymore. 
But this was like a magic sort of uh, mini version of that because it just went right through the industry and everybody knew. When was that? I remember there was, it was the a year ago. A year ago. September. A year ago, September. Uh -huh. And those who didn't see it were, you know, immediately, you know, like upset they didn't see it. So it was, it was the right kind of. Uh, Buzz, and I think that the spirit of that, those uh, workshops just infused everybody, and for this past year, that was our, you know, Would you still off. do that again, rather than go out of town? Oh, yes. Well, now, you also had the same theater. It came up at another seminar, which was quite exciting that you were in the, you workshopped it, or I mean, you, you yeah, you workshopped it in the very theater that you're, mm -hmm. you're in. There is uh, that intangible thing that happens. Uh, if you do a, a, a workshop in a rehearsal hall, not on a stage, there is something that doesn't happen. You always know you're in a room. If you go into a Broadway theater, sit down in a chair, and there's a stage, the actors also respond differently. They think they're, hey, this is Broadway. This is wonderful. And all that, that drives the requirement up. The expectation from the audience is equally high. And the advantage was that even the stagehands fell in love with the show. So we went back to the same place and there they were, our friends. At the end of the fourth uh, um, workshop, the cast turned around and applauded the stagehands <laughs> for their cooperation. So it, it, it's, this has been a love affair. What about unions? Is there a special coverage for that for your Yes, people? there are all sorts of strange rules that Abby understands. <laughs> You have to speak five languages. Well, well, for the workshop, I wasn't there, but we sat down with the local one. It was just local one. There was no other union. And what is local one? Stagehands. Okay. And we sat down and explained what we wanted to do and came up with a minimal crew that a workshop could afford at rates that we could afford. And they, you know, in, in this particular instance, they put their little blue book aside and became minute, part of our family. What is the little book? I'm, I'm the little blue book is the rules. You're going to get her. There's, there's, she's going to be in jail when you do bad things. I know. Well, that, that, you know, we were able to work. We were able to bend some of the rules. Was that because of the reputation of this producer? I think it was the reputation of, of both Manny and Herschel, Herschel mm -hmm. Waxman. Right, and they, the, so that when you sit down, they, there's a sort of a finite over, overall, well, this is how many in the crew you're going to have, or that would, that's prescribed by how, and then you go for work The from numbers there. in the crew in terms of when we came in with the Broadway production was you have to sit down with their stage manager and your, your department heads and say, this is the biggest move we have to make. How many men or women does it take to make this move? And that determines the maximum number of people you have mm -hmm. from you, that one big move. And each I, department has one of those You actually things. work on the designs to satisfy some lunatic requirements. It's the tail wags the dog a little bit here. But, um, but sometimes it's cheaper to automate a piece that flies in and out rather than put a man. Mm -hmm. You know, a man is $100,000 a year. To automate one piece can be $500 a week. It's a lot less. You don't pay him a hundred thousand. Now you have pension, to know. Pension, welfare, vacation, right. annuity, payroll taxes. How do you how do you know that? How do you get that knowledge? How do I get that yes. knowledge? 
where do you... Now, where did you start you know, and, and to learn this? Well, I did started... Did you start as an actress? No, I one started... One of the reasons why we do these... Okay, well, I started I put you on. in Washington, D.C. We want to know as much as possible. I started oh, in Washington, D.C., and I took a part-time job for Ticketron. Doing? Doing, selling. They had a main branch in Washington, D.C. that spent four hours selling tickets, and then they serviced the rest of their Montgomery wards and all their outlets. And I took a job there... You weren't a tickets. theater major somewhere. No, I was a psych major. <laughs> Just the same. <laughs> Which That's is it. very, very necessary. And from there, I started working in box offices. And I worked at the Warner Theater with Sam Lahamadou, which was a, an old uh, roadhouse. And it turned into a rock and roll house. And he wanted to turn it into, make it a touring house. And Mitch Lee and Manny Cloditis came through with The King and I, and the next thing I know, I was hired as the general manager's assistant, and I sold my car, sold everything, and moved to New York. And within a year, I was touring on the road as the company manager. What about union? Did you have, was your union? I was not in the union at that time. I'm now in Atpam. Mm -hmm. um, and I went on the road as the company manager of The King and I with Yul Brenner, mm -hmm. traveling with 75 people, 24 years old, 25 years old, all by myself, no computers. No assistance. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> no, and from there, I, I started learning. And you just, you just absorb it, you know. So that when you, when, uh, let's say, uh, Manny uh, says, okay, this is where we go, you sharpen the pencil and start doing the calculations of, of the budgets from there. And that's your job, as, yes, as I understand it. to do correct? the budgets. Yeah. And then, and, and then you obviously negotiate it, so how much you have to raise and go from that. But it starts... Doesn't it with you, with obviously the producer's oversight? Yeah, you start with the producers and you say, you know, you give them a budget and they say, oh, we can't, we can't raise that kind of money. We need to pare it down or, you know, and you work from there and you work together at, with it. Now, there's another thing, and this is actually for you, Manny. You, you went by something that, that I think is uh, really more, less a business question and more of a sort of an aesthetic question. When uh, you said it took us... Uh, a while to, what, three years to get the right theater. I, I don't think a lot of people realize the importance of the right theater. No, I, I, you know, I, I, then I, I, I have to talk about that a little bit, because it's, it's critical, and a lot of people forget that it's not just a house. It, it took us one year. Okay. Uh, it, three years was the, was the whole process of developing the show, of what was good, what was not, what was removed. Uh, we thought the, the ambiance of a theater is important. So there were only three in the city that we would approve. Uh, I think if you take this musical, Sideshow, and put it into a huge theater, it will be less effective. If you put it into a small theater, it might very well be effective, but the economics won't work. So there's a balance and an equilibrium to discover, and neither hurt the economics nor that artistic necessity. I mean, I sh I'm sure all of you have been to theaters in, that are too big. And that's done in order to, to generate the economics. So we waited for the three, one of the three, and we would have taken the first one that came up. And if this one didn't come up, we would still be waiting. So we w I, I was not going to be forced into uh, a decision that I thought was not uh, valid for this uh, particular piece. How many seats? 1,400. Mm -hmm. But it's the configuration of the theater that I like. It has a, the floor goes like this. So there's an intimacy. And the intimacy that I think is required in this musical is crucial. I want you involved. 
I don't want you that far away. And you didn't want a modern building either. You wanted an old right. house. An old no, this theater. orchestra is very reminiscent of our bleachers. It, it's right. very much of that bleacher effect. Our sets are bleachers. But also the staging brings you into that too mm -hmm. as well. It's, it's very well done. There's a sparseness to it that enables you to be part of what's going mm. on. It doesn't get in the right. way. Well, that's philosophic also. I think that uh, there is a statement to be made in contemporary musical theater that goes back to fundamentals. Uh, tell me a story, move me, sing, dance. You remember those? We used to have those <laughs> things. Rather than, with all due respect, helicopter chandeliers and airplanes and, Houses. and other things that we'll call scenery. When did you start casting for the Broadway production? Uh, three years ago. What did they do in the meantime? <laughs> uh, no, it, 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 there were people selected for the first workshop, uh, first presentation. They were fine, some were not, and we kept replacing. Uh, the last four or five people, other than the, the understudies and the swing people, were cast subsequent to the, to the workshop itself. And even in rehearsal, the crew, producers, and directors fired a few people that we thought were not appropriate. Not that they're terrible, it's just that you have to fit a slot. And it's an old-fashioned old requirement of uh, arrogance, again, excellence. If you want to play in the big leagues, you have to be good, you have to come on time, you have to work hard, and it's diligence. And and that's a tough thing to do. Uh, still, and right? Bobby Longbottom is a young man, but he's got that old-fashioned yeah. toughness mm -hmm. that I admire. And Very hence the empty Wonderful chair performer. here today. <laughs> that person was fired. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay, since you brought <laughs> you know, Bill, I'd, I'd like to add, because again, it's going, going back, reeling us back now. We, you're here with Sideshow. Where did you start in the theater as a press person? Uh, I actually started as a gopher for a costume company named Barbara Matera, who is still thriving and did these costumes for uh, Sideshow. I mean, were you trained, though? You, oh, no. No, in, I, I, was, in, no. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think that, that uh, many people, especially today, have a better idea of what they're going to do when they get out of college, and I didn't really, you know, I thought, I'm coming to New York, and that was about it. And I got it through a friend at college uh, related to the Materas. They got me a job. And I, in the morning, I went to the Winter Garden Theater, went backstage, and got the mirror costumes from Follies, which is a huge, huge production. And I'd take them to the shop, and these little old ladies would sew mirrors on all day. And then I'd take them, and I'd take them back there. And I thought I had arrived. And, you know, this was Broadway, and I was a part of it. Um, and then it just, I got hired uh, as a, an assistant to a press agent. And uh, why? That's a switch, yeah. Yeah. From costumes and well, they. I was looking to be. I was looking to get uh, connected with a show, and I didn't have an interest really in being a press agent. They needed someone who could write a paragraph or write a release, and that was this particular need in this office. And so I could do that. And so uh, because of a need and because you show up. Um, Sometimes it happens. Well, you said you could do that. Why could you do that? I was an English major at Colgate University. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And they taught me. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, I mean, it's true. I, yes, that's, that was uh, some preparation. But the, uh, a lot of it's luck and also a lot of it's communication. We all work so closely together that you have to get along 
every day in the trenches through the good, the bad, and everything else. And there's a lot of uh, fast-breaking uh, action, and you just have to be ready to adapt. And we've, you know, I've been uh, very lucky. I've worked with wonderful people, and through Manny, I've worked with Neil Simon for 20 years, and it's, it's been terrific. The thing that makes this one different is that uh, Manny, who's been threatening to retire for as long as I've been with him, um, <laughs> after this problem, yeah. <laughs> but these are there's a generation of great master theater people, of writers and directors. But they're it's an older generation, and they are, are, are you know thinking they've done enough. And so to see uh, a Longbottom come along, who who is so oriented to the theater, and you come into the theater as a member of an audience. And all of a sudden, I was all charged up, like, I remember this. You know, mm -hmm. this is what, when I started, I thought this was going to be, everything was going to be like this, and it's not. And so this is like, I think all of us are so stimulated by what we're, you know, participating in and supporting, um, that it's a real thrill and, that you can only get It also the shows that there is talent there. You just have to That's right. support it. Everybody That's right. says, where is, you know, the American playwrights, where they are there. If That's you'll right. take the time and and the the confidence, That's right. uh, which is important to have. Have you been with Manny all the time through all of his shows, starting Slaves. from what? Twenty-one years. Uh, Twenty-one for me. Mm -hmm. I know I don't look at it, Isabel. No, but no, no, no. <laughs> don't at all. Manny does. He gets paroled in a few years. <laughs> I'm paroled, right? Yeah. But you know, the, the, the also we. Uh, We've talked a little bit, and I'd like to get more into this later. Uh, about I, I just want to say yeah. one thing, if I may. I'm sorry. This is unique now, too, like new talent coming on and supporting, but also to have an organization in producing where you find the same teams that have been going on for 21 years. Uh, th that's something that uh, we have not seen yeah. a great deal of. No, it's, it's rare. It's, it's very important. Well, Neil Simon is, is to be thanked in a way yeah. for that, too. Yeah. It used to talk about that. It used to be the norm, because, uh, yeah. you know, we do, we grow up in that era where there were There's a continuity in the organization. It's, it's interesting, is that, that Bill, Abby, myself, everybody went to school, everyone went to college, and nobody, and the, their ambition was not to be what they are. I think that's, a fi that's true in the what was yours? Uh, I Apart wanted to really be a baseball player, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know about that. And, uh, and in fact, that's my, uh, my, my ticket into uh, part of my career had to do with that. Robert Redford and I played baseball on the same team. And when Neil Simon did Barefoot in the Park, uh, he, Mildred Natwick was not a good shortstop. The Broadway Show League. Good field, no hit. So Redford called up and said, come on, you have to play on this team. And that's how I met Neil Simon, who played second base. So it has nothing to do with my education, nothing to do with what I'm interested in. If you can pick up a ground ball, you have a career. Right. And, but he, his, his, uh, he didn't start out with that intention, nor did Abby, nor did I. You were attracted to the theater and you try to find your place. You didn't quite know you were doing that. I asked about uh, ambition. What was my, did I have an ambition to do this? I didn't know what a producer did until I was in my 30s, and I didn't care. What were you doing? I, I came out of the Army. I made more money, actually, as a lieutenant in the Army than I did till I was 32 years old. <laughs> uh, and I did sweep the floor in front of the Renata Theater on Bleecker Street and worked off-Broadway 
And then the government passed a law that said um, the closed shop is not permitted. <laughs> you can have a union shop. So I was hired by Alex Cohn and David Merrick. And, and I know it sounds strange. It doesn't sound strange to me, but to other people. I actually did plays with, you know, Tennessee Williams and mm -hmm. those people. It impresses me now, but it didn't impress me then. <laughs> uh, and it was a company manager, and I thought, oh, I could do that. And one thing kind of led to another. And then that softball and a, game. And a learning process at the same time. Yes, we were all trained. Yes. So it, I remember an actual moment, kind of epiphany kind of moment, of walking, I was 35 by that time, of walking down 45th Street and actually realizing that they can't fool me anymore. <laughs> it's a strange idea that you really, you understood it now. And you also knew who told the truth and who didn't. And those who exaggerated, you just nod your head and know, put him in a certain category. Uh, and there's a great comfort in having some quiet expertise. Rather, it's not genius, it's just knowledge. But you don't get that training. There's and no place to get the training right. except there. And you have to give up that delusion of security. I grew up in a time when you became a doctor. And if you didn't become a doctor, you became a doctor. <laughs> and if you were a failure, you were a dentist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the side yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I do want to ask one quick question, okay. though. Uh, Abby, do you want to be a producer when you grow up? Well, if I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, that would be... Uh, but general manager, it's a way, the way stage manager... I want to be a doctor. <laughs> Not a dentist. Okay. All right, all right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Let's go do the casting. We've got the theater. Does that come before we have the cast? We've talked a little bit before. And he said you had them for, lo, those many years. We had, uh, the we, they had the cast before the theater. Yeah. You, you can uh, quite audition? possibly lose people because you don't have a theater. And we auditioned constantly. Did you use a casting agent? Did you use... Yes, yes. Was, uh, the, is that that's yet another procedure? job. Is that standard procedure now? And that's a new, rather yeah. relatively new phenomenon, isn't it? A casting No, I, way cast. back in, in the Merrick days, uh, in the 60s, there was, a, there was an in-house casting person. Uh -huh. And uh, you always need a casting person for principals. The chorus was dealt with differently. There would be a call, and 3,000 people would show up, and the choreographer would, the cattle calls, they were called, and uh, would select. But there, there is a difference today than in, in the old days. No good chorus kid was in a show more than 12 or 16 weeks. They went on to the next one. Now you've, I'm sure, recently read people have been in for 11 years. And uh, who pays the casting agent? Abby. The, yeah, personally. <laughs> so that comes out of the does. producer's budget. Yes. Yeah. It's and out of, they get a fee, and then they get a weekly retainer. A weekly retainer? It's While ongoing the show work. is... It's ongoing work because you, you never know when somebody's, especially in the chorus, as, as Manny says, a lot of them do. After three or four months, they move on to the next show. So you or have get to... Hurt, I mean, or somebody gets injured. And so it is more economical to uh, continue paying them? than to rehire them for that, uh, if somebody does either. Yeah, I think that. so. I mean, that's the way it's, it's evolved in terms of that's the norm. I, I don't know if they could, you know, if they charged you a fee every time you needed 
to call them, it, would, it probably wouldn't be feasible for them. It's a crucial job. Yeah. The, 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 the performers are the, that's who the public sees. And the difference, I mean, we've all seen Hamlet. Sometimes with a bad Hamlet, it's the single most boring play ever written. And with a good one, it's a masterpiece. You make the wrong selection. They have wonderful voices that you have. Marvelous mm. voices. Yes. And then that, that's another audition mm -hmm. for the musical director. You have to really be able to sing in this show. Not because there's a microphone, but you, you have to genuinely be able to sing. You know, the, that's another old-fashioned value. <laughs> but the casting for Siamese Twins adds a whole lot of other things to it in terms of how they relate to each other visually and singing-wise and everything else. And so this was particularly for this show. Um, and they found two great ones. And their, their body formation must be similar. Mm, yes. I mean, that you don't waste. Yeah, must yeah. be connected. You can't have it like how this. Is how many auditions, how many people did you see in order to choose those two that would fulfill well, those well, it requirements. Took, oh, it was over a, a, an extended period of time. We always yeah. had one. Emily Skinner was there from the beginning, and, and so that therefore the match had to be with mm -hmm. Emily. Uh, twins came in from Chicago, and they were wonderful. Really? And, and they cried through the whole audition because oh, the, the similarity in, in life's sensibility, they understood instantly. Mm -hmm. And on the road companies, which we actually started planning yesterday, uh, we'll go back to them and they'll audition again. They don't look like the, the two girls, they're two dark-haired girls, but the thought of having actual twins who can yeah. sing is intriguing. Well, that's a, that, that's a, a particularly, I imagine, critical thing where you say you had uh, one person coming along, then obviously you were trying to get a match. Right, we had to find a match a, to Emily. Uh, and, the, and the nice thing, I would, and this goes back, I guess, with you, Bill, when, when you're not dealing with big names here, because you can't. I mean, I, I mean right. you, you really have to find people who can do it. And that makes your job even a little bit more difficult. Because it makes it more difficult and also makes it much uh, more fun because both of these women are so excited about what they're doing and so excited to be on Broadway. And they say, thank you. And, you know, it's like sometimes I'm like, am I in the star dressing room? And, and so that really is a joyful part of this production, that they really are excited and want to do everything. As, as Where did they come from? Alice Ripley was in Sunset Boulevard uh, and played the, the Betty Schaefer uh, young screenwriter. It's not a huge part um, on Broadway and Emily was in Justin Jekyll and Hyde uh, prior to that. Alice prior to, to Sunset was in Tommy. She was That's the understudy right. to the mother. Right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, did Longbottom sit in on the first casting on the, on you, on the first auditions? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. No, they, there's a, a selection process. Uh, uh, many people show up. Some are inappropriate for, for us Who at this moment. Who made the decisions, inappropriate or come it back? Was a, it was a joint decision. I mean, it, Johnson Liff is you the casting and, agent. And no, no. Once Johnson Liff filtered uh, with down to a group that he wanted to present to Bobby and David Chase and Henry Krieger and Bill, they all sat and listened to them and went through all that audition process and it was joint. We were there. Um, the, the, everyone has a veto mm -hmm. and, you don't, and it's mostly unnecessary to exercise it. Uh, 
you have to satisfy five people. Mm -hmm. Well, also, I imagine when you find the right one, when you say it's usually it's magic because it's you there know. and everybody sort of says, "Wow, it, it's the one." The Norm Lewis, who plays Jake, who's an African American uh, actor. They auditioned him, and he was really wonderful. So they called me up, and they said, we think we found him. And I went down, and, it, and he was ready. Mm -hmm. And he sang, and I leaned over to Bobby, and I said, offer him the job. <laughs> Nobody does that. You wait, you call the agent, you make a mistake out of all of them. And Bobby said, really? And I said, yeah, just tell him. So he said, Norm, would you like to play the part? <laughs> and he started to cry. <laughs> he said, nobody ever did that before. And I said, well, why torture you for five hours? You want to do it? And he said, tears coming down. And I said, you just blew your whole negotiating position. <laughs> 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 of course. Okay. It's great. Let's get into the negotiation. You walked, opened it. Happy. Do you negotiate on salaries? Or does the agent say, no, this is what he gets, and that's it? Oh, no, you negotiate with the agent. Yeah, yeah never with uh, the principal, know, sure. You always, you, it's a negotiation because... As you negotiate Because you have a budget. Mm -hmm. and, right. and you have to fit these actors into the budget. Or else you have to, you know, move on. Well, this, I would think, um, would be in the sense of sideshow because it's, one, it's, it's evolved. People have been with it. It's, it's an ensemble. Mm -hmm. These are not going back to the big name thing. You're not overweighting the budget with some, you know, 900-pound gorilla star. No, right, Which I would think would make it mm -hmm. a little easier mm -hmm. to, to do that. Can we uh, stand a breakdown of budget, like $100, and what's the percentage of, of it can we find? Cast to crew to, you know, where, music. Where's your... That's kind of complicated, but you know? I, I think it would be fair. It, uh, that's a variable. <coughs> if you have a star, it's one thing. Uh, it's broken down into, into principles and chorus. Uh, it's, How many are in I, the chorus, you know, considered chorus? What you have six, principles, six uh, out of the 22, so 16. 16. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't make that differentiation. No. It's, a, it's a union differentiation. And uh, I have a real objection to it. I think it kind of makes first class and second class situations that are unnecessary. But there is an old history of a, having a chorus. And in many years ago, they were abused. The chorus kids were abused, so they formed a group. It was called Chorus Equity, which ultimately merged with, the, with equity. And they want to maintain a certain identity, so it's called the pink contract. I always jokingly say, can't we change the color at least? <laughs> but the, so there's a pink contract and a white contract. I mean, it's... Well, now the, it's the uh, bureaucracy of an industry. Yeah. Uh, what what is uh, what what are the Broadway minimums? Let's say. For I, I mean, you're not going to let them just say there's a pink contract and a white contract and not go further. A blue contract. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, that, well, well, that's where I'm going. The, the with pink contract is a chorus contract. Okay. And a white contract is a principal. Uh, principals can be paid anywhere from minimum, which is about eleven hundred dollars, to a trillion dollars, fifty thousand dollars a week. Right. Madness. Uh, and the pink contract? And the pink contract invariably stays, if you're, if you're a generous, wonderful, expansive, charitable producer as we are, uh -huh. you can get paid anywhere up to $1,750 a week. $1,750 a week. For any 
Uh, for a pink contract. For a pink contract also, but do you have to be able to sing or dance more than the minimum? I'm using $1,750 because that's what we paid a, a, a first-rate pink contract dancer in Jerome Robbins' Broadway, which was another right. show that we did. And uh, he won the Tony in the pink contract mm -hmm. as the best supporting actor. And, and he went from, he was the best, I thought he was, he's sensational. It's Scott Wise, yeah. but he's a wonderful dancer. So he went from $1,750 on a pink contract to $3,000 <laughs> on a pink contract. It's... But that was a producer's choice, right? To do. Well, it's not. He has a position as well. I mean, he's that good, and he walked into the office and said, "Give me more money." And I said, "Sure." And that was that. <laughs> See how easy it is. Yeah, it's, it's a piece of cake. There, there are some people that are that are just replaceable mm -hmm. by a list, a long list of others, and they don't have that kind of leverage. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a mistake to. Uh, I don't. I hate the hierarchy. I hate the idea that one person is less important than another, and in the shows that we do, we try to create an atmosphere of community, and uh, I think it serves the show very well. I want to pick up on that, Annie, because that's absolutely, I, I, I sense it as being true. You have, a, you have a team, you have people who have been with you for uh, 20 plus years. Um, the, uh, I think that is a major producer's job. Again, it's like, like choosing the theater which people forget about. Uh, a producer, wouldn't you say, and uh, the creation of a community within a production is a vital idea, or when there's chaos too, and if there's chaos, the show tends not to work, or is that? I, uh, listen, I agree with it. One, I, I don't really want to walk into backstage into an antagonistic situation. Uh, also, I think uh, I'm old enough to be idealistic now and I think that the truth is uh, a lot easier. So there's no delusion, no, uh, the producer is something to, that people have to be afraid of, or the general manager. We walk backstage, we, have, we keep everybody in the company abreast of all the economics, so that there are no rumors. This industry is rife with rumors, and you hear stories on a daily basis. And it's better to keep old military expression, Keep the troops informed. So we keep the troops informed, and they also we are accessible. So if they have a complaint or something, they come up and they articulate it. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree. It just um, means that they're not afraid to ask. What about producers when there is more than one producer as we're getting more and more producers into a production? How does that work out? How do you, how do you deal? Who makes the decisions? Is there a senior producer? Is there? Uh, I know the for lack of a better term. Yes. <laughs> uh, the reason there are so many producers listed above the title these days is because of the economics. When I worked for Merrick, uh, Hello Dolly was the most expensive musical ever done up till that point. That was 1964. Someone in the audience who knows here, actually. And uh, the, the, the cost was 450000 mm -hmm. I was working on another one at the time, uh, 110 in the shade, was 350000 Now, $450,000 won't get you through lunch. <laughs> and musicals are ranging from uh, $5 million to 
16 million dollars and the discussions that are taking place among the corporations are well we can spend 20 million dollars well it's another kind What's of... What's bringing that cost up so high? Uh, greed, mostly. <laughs> In every area. Yeah. Everybody All says... Along. It's compartmentalized profit. Everybody says... Everybody makes their big speech about the, the need for the cultural... Uh, the theater... Uh, in, the culture, in the big picture culturally for the country. And uh, they're all self-righteous and it's wonderful and the intentions are good. And then they say, yeah, but I gotta get mine. So the unions get theirs, the producers get theirs, the managers get theirs and the actors get theirs, and the New York Times gets theirs, and the Post gets theirs, and, and, and they all make big speeches again, and they still take it. But many careers, though, in the theater are, are a wonderful patch and a horrible patch, and sometimes the horrible patches can go on for a long time, so I think part of it, when you're on a winner, you're thinking, all right, when I'm, when I'm uh, hungry at the other end of Saving it. Saving for a range Yeah, end. and I think many careers are that way. Mm -hmm. I, I accept that the ticket price goes up right alongside it. And when we were kids, we went to the theater, and that wasn't such a long time ago. Uh, when we were kids, we went uh, for a dollar twenty, ninety cents, dollar eighty. Some of you might remember. And even if I, a heavy date on a Saturday night to see Harry Belafonte and Almanac was three dollars and sixty cents at the Music Box, because I remember the girl I went with. <laughs> and now. It's a $75 ticket. So we're precluding an audience. There are generations that don't go unless they get it discounted or they go through the wing or they go through some... Uh, what about your balconies? Why is it costed the mezzanine, which is really your first balcony, uh, in most, many theaters, the same price as orchestra? And why isn't there... Uh, in, a, in a musical, the mezzanine is very often the better seat. Forget the chicness of sitting in the fifth row. Fifth row for the musical seems to me foolish. You have no perspective at all. The farther back in the orchestra, you be the better off you are. And the mezzanine, the front of the mezzanine, is a glorious seat. Of course, you're not sitting next to Nicole Kidman or something, but... Uh, <laughs> but is that cheaper in your ticket price? Is there a decrease in your ticket price for... In the front of the mezzanine? No. In the no. From the mid, there's a midsection, that's a little less, and then the rear of the mezzanine is less. And then, what about, do you have a second balcony or a... No, it's, it's a rear mezzanine. Rear mezzanine, counts it. Mm -hmm. So there's no but Isabel, there's a ticket price. We're, we're in a, such a small rate area, Broadway, and you can buy a ticket anywhere from, from $7 to $200 How within that area. How do you buy the $7 ticket? <laughs> through TDF. Yeah, the theater development fund. Theater development fund. You can get into that theater on a, on a theater development fund $7 ticket. Maybe it's $12 now. Yeah, it's more than that, but 17. the point is you 17, have to be... $17, 17 right. Yeah. Well, well, is there any provision made at the theater itself uh, for rush tickets or uh, senior citizens or, or youth ID tickets? You do that in an organized way. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there has to be a better system than the one we're using. The one we're using is somewhere in the fourth century, but uh, maybe right. we'll grow up. What do the stagehands get? What is the, what is the, like the pink and white contracts? What is, what is the average? I know there's no minimum, I mean, that's a negotiation, but it, let's say for the different kinds of stagehands, what is the, what is the minimum on that? Uh, somewhere between 1000 and $1,500 a week is what the average stagehand will be paying. Uh -huh. That's, that's a, a parameter. So they mm -hmm. still get slightly less than the, uh, than the actors, but not by much. Some don't, obviously. No, but there, there is a, as these shows become more complicated, the technicality. We, we have, a, as management, you have a tendency of putting down the stagehand. 
uh, I don't really put, I don't have that feeling. I think the rules governing the behavior of all of our uh, union rep members, equity, stagehands, press agents, managers, I'm a manager, we have a union, manager's union seems to be somehow part of a contradiction, <laughs> but uh, it's the rules that have evolved that are preclusive of, uh, of efficiency. It's a good technician is worth the money. The man that runs our sound at Sideshow, I hope he doesn't hear this program. <laughs> it's worth more than we're paying. <laughs> Here goes his negotiation. Yeah, yeah. right. Here's like my negotiation. <laughs> exactly. Bill, I wanted to ask you too. So we, we started. There's a. There's a. The, the, this is uh, maybe asking you to uh, uh, reveal professional secrets. But part of the thing, apart from writing a release and overseeing the entire. Uh, ads and uh, the ad advertising and all that. Um, you have to, am I right, develop some kind <laughs> of easy rapport with the critics, right, and the, and the writers, and how do you do that? Well, what I say to, when the critics start coming, like four days before every opening now, and they're given a choice and it's spread out and all the reviews come out on the, the, the designated day, usually Fridays, I usually say to, as I said to Mr. Longbottom or some of the actors, I, you know, I said, this is a great show and you people are doing wonderful acting jobs, but if you want to see a real acting job, watch me on the sidewalk greeting the critics. <laughs> because I, I, and I think most press agents do, I stand out there on the sidewalk and I hand them to them. And many of the people, I would say the majority of the people have been there as long as I've been here which is 27 years. That's interesting. And I, would, I thought it had changed so much, at, especially the New York Times, that, yeah. that the turnover there was so much. But the, the other thing is what you're leading to, I think, is, is the relationships. And it's my relationships with the editors and the right. people who book shows and the, uh, over the years so they know how to read me and they know that my trust, you know, or believability level is so much and somebody else's might not be and if you deal you know above board you have access to these people and so i and i've been so so uh enthused by sideshow that there are some of my oldest people who say bill are you putting me on mm -hmm. i go no <laughs> so you know you sort of almost need to uh believe me yeah trust me yeah, yeah. It's not, it's but usually it's 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 the practical level of they've mm -hmm. got a job to do they've got to fill up their paper they've got a deadline they want to go home and see the kids you know it's like it's just there's a routine and everybody has their job and if you can do what you're supposed to do and enable them to do their job easily i think that's basically it well yeah. there's one other he's also uh, has to do with that extended period of time that we've all worked together he's also a confidant of neil simon on this on the simon place and bobby trusts him bobby longbottom trusts him so that you, you your job goes way beyond the designation of mm -hmm. press agent there are there's a need to have an opinion. He has an opinion. You don't make. Sometimes you have to create an opinion. In the case of and in the case of people who trust each other, it's unnecessary. You actually have one. You tell the truth, or you say I don't know, as opposed to this artificial opinion created by most people. What did you think? Well, it was wonderful. The second act needs a little work. <laughs> well, and that's and also as I say you talk about the critics and. But it's also the arts writers because you know the review those is the, the review is the review. Right. And then those the are the one. more the most important ones, and there is a pecking order, which I hope nobody's watching this either. But there's certain <laughs> things you want 
in, from a newspaper or a certain newspaper, mm -hmm. and you want that before you want the other thing. But you have to navigate through all of that so that you don't alienate the one you don't want, because if you don't get the one you want, you want the one you don't want. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough, and the morning television shows are very competitive. And uh, you book one and forget it. You're not in the other. How important is that, that morning television show? I think the morning shows uh, are very important, uh, especially when you have someone who they know, they recognize. To put them on that national audience, and uh, Gene Shalit says, it's great to have you back on Broadway. All of a sudden, things click, and it's much mm -hmm. easier to locate this person in this show and the idea of going there. But even on the unknown ones, and, and uh, hopefully you'll see our twins soon, uh, it, it's, it's a, a forum that is just a terrific... Does that offset a bad review in the media? Well, I think so, in some ways. But I, what I really think is that the people who leave any show, and it's the word of mouth, the press agent cannot create a hit or, or ruin it, I don't think. Um, but you can enhance what you have and do the best job you can but it's what they say when they go home and see their friends. How and, much uh, time do you have for word of mouth to take hold? That's right. That's tricky. That's yeah. a, it's a difficult question. The, the answer is how much money do you have to wait? Mm -hmm. uh, if, and also you have to be very objective about that judgment about is the word of mouth good? Everybody says the word of mouth is good, but uh, it's, uh, it's a delusion. Sometimes the audience just doesn't want you. And it's the public that ultimately makes the judgment. Uh, the critic can be helpful, and, and the New York Times can be extraordinarily helpful. In the long run, even the New York Times cannot keep a show that the public doesn't want running. And, and isn't it, uh, do you have a reserve? Yes. We didn't have a reserve. Or <laughs> well, we had a reserve, and it wasn't sufficient. So we mortgaged Abby's house, <laughs> <laughs> Bill's house, and my house, right. and we generated more money to to promote the show. Uh, that, it's a joke, but it's a dedication. And it's not quite as bad as I said, but it's pretty close. <laughs> well, in, It's not as tough as I thought it was going to be, and I think it's just wonderful having you here. We've been talking to the producers and the workers in the vineyard, in the theater, uh, sideshow and the American Theatre Wing seminar uh, work in the theatre. We're going to take a break right now, breathe a bit, and then come right back with all the questions that I know uh, are going to be asked and that I want to hear as well. I want to hear the answers. I want to also ask some of the questions. So. <laughs> This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theater, coming to you from CUNY, the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this seminar is on the production, and it is a team of sideshow. Manny Eisenberg, who is going to tell us how simple it is to put on a hit show and a really very good one. Manny, would you pick this up? Because you, you know how to do it. How do you do it? Uh, my first recommendation is that you find something you care about and you feel that expresses something of yourself. Uh, I know that's almost uh, 
it's not chic from producers, but I think it's certainly crucial and certainly part of uh, the way I was trained. Uh, subsequent to that, you have to option the piece or you have to own it in a sense. Your obligation is uh, to be very helpful artistically to the extent that you can be and to the extent that your peripheral position, which is what a producer is in the, art, in the creation of a piece, uh, allows you. You're, fu you're fully responsible for the economics and you have to go out and raise a lot of money, which is sometimes difficult, but sometimes more embarrassing because it's not really an investment. It's a crapshoot. And you have to, it's a cultural crapshoot, which in my mind justifies it for myself, that we're trying to do something that might nudge the world. That's a stoppard line, it's not mine. And, uh, and that commitment, uh, that heartfelt commitment justifies your behavior. If you raise the money and the, and the project develops, then you have to find a theater for it. To my mind, it should be a theater that is very suitable for the, for the feel of the play or the musical. When it opens, praying is a big help. Good reviews is equal to praying. A combination of good reviews and a little prayer, and you have a success, and then the work starts all over again. Maintaining the success, maintaining the quality of the show, uh, additional companies. These days, a musical is international. So there'll be a company on the road in the United States, there might be two. Uh, one in Toronto, one in uh, London, Germany, the rim of Asia, Australia, and it takes a great deal of energy and commitment to try and maintain that quality. The money no longer becomes a problem, but the quality always is a problem. Is it something I would recommend? Mm -hmm. I would recommend that you become very well trained so that it's not a mystery and that you understand the risks, not only financially, but uh, the pain of failure. Uh, because if you do commit emotionally, it's a love affair gone awry. And it's worth the trip because it, there's passion involved. And wherever there's passion, there's potential pain. I've done a few of these, and I no longer can become a doctor or a senator or other ambitions. And although it was not an ambition of my youth, since I had no idea what a producer was, but uh, I've had a, a, it's been a blessing. I've had a good life, and uh, the theater is nicely a, said. Mm -hmm. Nicely. I'm said. not dead yet, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, would uh, you do it yeah. again? Would I do it again? Mm -hmm. uh, would I, yes, I would. Without, I don't think without hesitation. There might be a few things I would do differently. Uh, there would be one or two shows that I would not have done but only one or two because those were shows that I, uh, I listened to other people's opinions as opposed to mine. You get in a room and everybody says, this is a smash, this is good, you'll make $42 million and then it comes around to you and you say, uh, oh yeah, I'm in.
<laughs> and then you find out that nobody made the money, the movie rights were never sold, and you didn't care, and you don't... What speaks to you about Sideshow? You talked about the chaplain coming from, from Ringling Brothers, too, but what speaks to you about the show? There's a song at the end of the first... I'm glad you asked that, John. <laughs> uh, there's a song at the end of the first act that breaks my heart every night. And the song is a, a glorious ballad that the two girls sing called Who Will Love Me As I Am. And that's not about Siamese twins. It's about everybody. At four o'clock in the morning, I don't believe there is a human being when he wakes up, wonders, do the people who love me really know who I am? Or am I so complicated that no one will ever know? And it's a heartfelt, passionate, wonderful song. And I think that this evening, this musical is much more about who will love me as I am than Siamese twins or freaks or anything else. Uh, the, the obsession with uh, the grotesque is nonsense. The passion of the evening is exactly that, that are we tolerant enough to recognize the sensibilities of people who are a little different and are we willing to acknowledge those sensibilities and be a decent human being. And that's what this evening And is accept about. yourself, yeah. too. Yes. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people the recognition. Well, I'm sorry, you're right. And the recognition is that recognize who you are. Maybe try to that's improve almost the, that. That really is a deep uh, definition of integrity, i.e. Mm -hmm. integration into what you are. And how, you know. yeah. there, to get back to the dollars and cents, marketing has become another important word and, 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 and also an important item in the budget. Uh, who decides on that bill? Are you in on that? Well, I'm in Is on that it, part? sure. And then do you have someone separately do the Yeah, well, there's an advertising agency that for each show uh, goes with and uh, the one we're with uh, happily at the moment is as crazy about the show as we are. So they're, they're as driven to find different ways. But we live in a television world. You mm -hmm. know, and that for a big mm -hmm. musical, sooner or later, is, is, that's it, you know. Well, you've got to. I, 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 know, uh, I, I know we've got to probably uh, move on to other things, but I would love to at some point figure out how you go to a television morning show and sell them on the idea of sideshow. Because it's not like you're selling some gigantic stuff. But that's, that's publicity, isn't it? That's right. public relation. That's not marketing. That's bribery. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Never. <laughs> Do you reach out to groups and, and uh, in, uh, organizations outside of, of uh, New York, for example? Women's groups or Yes, and that usually comes after you're up and running. Right now, we're, we're the, the build-up to the opening and the takeoff, that we're, we're in the, the nuts and bolts, as it were, of all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And as we're here longer, it absolutely branches out to different special interest groups or people who can identify or are interested. And we have letters from people who dance with the Hilton sisters in real life. And, and you know, th there's just a wealth of response to this. But at the moment, it's about getting the immediate hardcore theater buying audience in there and then building out from there. Did you have a group sale, a large group sale before you opened? No, the resistance is the preconception. Mm -hmm. We got one letter though uh, to, to answer your question and to add to what Bill said from someone, it was, a, it was a, a lovely note, who said he performed with the Hilton sisters at the palace 
And he said he hopes that we are not going to treat them like freaks because they were two delightful women who were compassionate, warm, and you read it and you realized that you were dealing with the reality of well, that's two, what came two individual human in the, beings. In, in the show. You deserve some consideration. No, we didn't have a lot of groups because if you have a choice between The Lion King and Ragtime and Sideshow, you're going to choose the safe one. And the chairman for various committees, the, the, the decision to buy groups is done by a chairman of an organization. So you have to satisfy the, the, the wishes of what you think will be the majority of those people in the organization. And the other shows are much more acceptable. Uh, what do you mean the organization? If, if you, Charity or... The, the, the chairman of an organization decides to have a theater party. You make a choice of the show you're going to see. You have to answer to your constituency. I mean, we've all been in the theater when, in the Neil Simon history, there's always a woman that gets up and yells at the end of the show if Neil had written a, a funny play. Shirley, you picked a winner this time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. As if she wrote it. Yeah. And Neil, Neil sits there looking, what about me? What about me? <laughs> I'm going to turn to questions now. And would you please step up? Hi, my name is Breland Brooks. I'm an actress. I had a question about press and the media. How do you generate interest? Uh, you kind of touched on this briefly with like a talk show or uh, the newspapers to write a specific story about sideshow. Or... It, it starts, especially when you know something is coming. The longer time you have, the better. But it starts with me talking to the people that I know and say, in a year from now, we're going to do this show. And also, if you're working on multiple shows, when you're booking them to see a show that you're working on right now, and if you know what's coming, it's an opportunity to speak without grinding the axe. And they, they're, these people are interested, and as I said before, not only because they like the theater, but also because their job is to fill the page in an interesting way. So, so I think it's the relationships, and I just keep in touch with well, I would think doing your research, too, like the fact I found out that they were, just yesterday, that they were married, on, uh, one was married on the, at halftime at the Cotton Bowl. That's right. And, uh, you know, those details you do have to know. So you do a quick study, whatever the subject is. Um, and I, we worked on a wide range of subjects with uh, Mr. Edinburgh. So you have, to, you have to learn a little bit. Hi, my name is Norma Goldberg, and I have another question for you, Bill. Uh, many reviewers, or at least some of them, make references to historical or literary influences on the play, especially, I think, uh, the review of the Times of Sideshow did that. Do, how much do you give the reviewers as far as background? Uh, again, it, that can change from if it's a real history sort of show, sometimes you give more. But I think the difference with the system of them coming four days earlier, three days earlier, two days, it gives them time to really work on something. In the old days, when they left the theater at 9.30 and had to type the review in an hour, I think you got much more of their immediate feelings and how did they feel and how did the play hit them. And in some cases, uh, you feel like the reviewers just went to the encyclopedia and boom, down and they show you know that they know all about this subject. Um, from review to review, to review I, you know, you can't... Uh, I was interested in the book he was talking about, but on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, I'm always interested in how do they feel, how do they react. Yes. Hello, I'm Howard Goldberg. I have a question for Mr. Asenberg. Since uh, economics is such an important factor in the theater, how do you strike a balance between artistry and popularity? 
My first response is that you, uh, I, I don't think, we, except for those genuine failures the, of, that I've had, and those are the ones that you choose because you don't care about it, you, or you don't really care about it. The first response is, do I like it? Does it talk to me? And then I'll deal with the economics. Uh, there are some, there, I suppose that there are, have been occasionally things that I've worked, I was really passionate about and didn't do because of the economics. But the, uh, the passion and the commitment comes first. And then I'll make the economics work, or as best I can. I don't know, there's some arrogance to that, but... Uh, and then you have to do, you have to, yes indeed, strike a balance. It must, it must fit into a theater. The, the, the economics must make some sense. Uh, I, I don't think we've ever done a show that uh, that if it were a hit, the investor would be hurt. The goal is that if it is a hit, the investor will make a killing. Thank you. My name is Sylvia Katz, Mr. Eisenberg. I'd like to know what uh, Mr. Longbottom's previous theatrical background was. And also, I was curious about who selects the production's creative staff, such as the musical directors, choreographers, arrangers, and so forth. Uh, the first answer question. is Bobby Longbottom was a dancer in uh, one of the companies of Chorus Line, she, uh, 42nd, 42nd Street, 42nd Street and the other one, Me and My, Me and my Girl. Uh, so his background is with some choreographers that have had some experience. He also does the show at Radio City Music Hall. He does the, the show. Christmas. Yes, the Christmas the show. The Christmas show. And, uh, Pageant also. So, and, and his commitment is is wonderful. Uh, the, the selection of everybody else falls into departments. Normally the composer will choose uh, who the conductor is. Everybody has an approval. Uh, you, don't, you try not to exercise who it. Who is if, he, if, everybody? I can, I can override, and the director can override somebody's, somebody's choice. If I have a t particular antipathy to a designer, I'm going to say I don't like him. But the musical director and the arranger and the, uh, and the copyists in the music department fall under the, the jurisdiction, as it were, of the composer. And as long as he selects people that, are, that, we have, that have a history of competence and ability, you try not to interfere. People, there's a balance of trying to pretend to be an authority. Sometimes you don't have to be. Sometimes they, people actually select good people without your help. Hi, my name is Roberto Bugard, and I would like to ask to Mr. Eisenberg, uh, what kind of marketing, specific marketing campaign are you using for this show? You'd have to ask them. <laughs> okay, then. I, I, when, when marketing came up, it's a word that almost backs me up. I think it's a euphemism for selling, isn't it? There used to be people who sold. There were salesmen. Now they're marketing, <laughs> which sounds better. But... It's, it's an area that I would dump over on them because I don't know anything about it and I'm never quite sure whether hanging posters in a supermarket sells tickets <laughs> and giving away two for one if you buy a grapefruit and all of those things are... Uh, it's not from my time, it's now. And they're, they're so much younger than I am. <laughs> So it's, what about it's you? Yeah, what you well, man, he is deeply suspicious, in other words, of, of marketing, because a lot of it, it does sound uh, ridiculous. What I think the marketing is, is 
again, what I said about the core audience, that your first audience to me is the people who keep up with it, are interested in it, and are, have a habit of buying tickets. And those are the inside people. So they get their information through the Times and the magazines and the, all those normal places. When you go out from there, in something like Cats, for instance, there, there, there's 15 years later, there are enormously uh, successful supermarket and face painting and all kinds of things that really, really reach out and, and get to people that might not otherwise come to Broadway. And, and that may well happen with, with Sideshow. But I always think you, you, get, you get the inside group and then you build out. Abby, what do you think? Yeah. Hi, my name is Annette Salzgard and I came here from Sweden to pursue theater. And I'm just really curious, how do one really go about getting financing and backers Oh, <laughs> uh, you mean initially? Initially, it's not so simple. Uh, after you've done it for a while, you have this backlog of people. Uh, it's a grind, and it's, it's a discipline. One, I, I suggest whatever it is that you're going to do, you better believe in. Because you're not asking them to invest you're asking them to kind of give, them, give you their money because the theater's not an investment. And then you ask everybody that you know, does anybody here know a rich person who is foolish <laughs> enough to invest in the theater? Or sometimes, on occasion, is smart enough because whoever put their money in rent ain't losing anything. Uh, and you use rent or the successes as a frame of reference. But I suggested that you be as honest as you possibly can because people read the con jobs. And if you're first starting out, you're not going to have a track record and your integrity will be crucial. And then you better hire a few people around you who will confirm that your economic presentation makes some sense. Did that come about because of your reputation as a producer? Do you have a core that will come into whatever you do now? Because uh, I would like ten to years so. ago you uh, were recognized as... Well, we have a relatively unique situation, Isabel, because the, the Neil Simons is an investment, not a crapshoot. So there have been people over the years that have seen our statements and have gotten checks, shockingly enough. And uh, so we have that. But when you do a musical, you have to go way past that. Why do people invest in shows? Uh, why? Uh, I think that there are, it ranges from a genuine cultural interest, support, personal relationships, uh, delusions of glamour, uh, the need to participate. What am I going to do with all this money I made on the stock market? Uh, I suppose somewhere in there is everybody. Uh, I don't think anybody puts the money in as if it were AT&T. Mm -hmm. I think there are uh, other agenda and not all evil. I think it's a great place to be if you've got all that money, too. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Quanda Johnson, and 
Well, I'm a performing artist who was on tour earlier this year, Manny, with Carol Channing and Hello Dolly. Uh, my question is for you, Manny, and it's being a veteran producer, uh, what is your vision for the future of musical comedy on Broadway, musical theater on Broadway, especially in lieu of the successes of Rent and The Life and now Sideshow? It's twofold. One would be the, the, the uh, hopeful and affirmative one, which is hopefully that there is a world out there of music, of not of my generation. Uh, Rent, I, we have something to do with Rent. And when I first went to see it, I had to take my oldest daughter. And when it was over, I said, Karen, is this good? She said, yeah, it's good. It's good! <laughs> <laughs> because it's a sound that is very valid for a number of generations of people and not for my generation. And that's the evolution of the theater. Well, there was a time prior to Rodgers and Hammerstein called operetta. Mm -hmm. And then the operettas went away. And then there was the book musical. And then they went away. And then there was the, uh, what company began that? Well, the concept. The concept okay. musical. Uh, so there will be an evolution of, of what the musical is based on the music of the day. And when the, the musical theater will be strengthened when you use contemporary music on the stage. Mm -hmm. So if you had hit records that came out of uh, Rent or, or Whitney Houston records two songs from Sideshow, that will be a plus. The economics, on the other hand, are debilitating. And I think that unless something happens to change it, there are going to be musicals produced by Disney and Time Warner and by major corporations because musicals are becoming international and somebody got to look at the cat's total gross over $15 million and it's in the billions or something like that. So that, uh, and merchandising is also connected to it. So, and I think that's dangerous. Then you have theme park kinds of uh, potential and... Is there a cast album? Of We're recording time. it a week from... Monday. Thank you. Huh, when? November from Monday. Everybody, please buy it. It's wonderful. Thanks. If you don't like it, call me up. I won't give you my number, but... <laughs> you, you know, there is, there is that, that it's, uh, just to interject, there, is, there was a time, which I think is, I hope is going to come back, when the top ten musical hits on the radio and, uh, were from Broadway. Mm. And now they're, God knows, from anywhere. Right. And one would hope that they would get back, that you'd hear uh, the top... Absolutely. If the, the major media is, is television, to a certain extent even radio these days, that if, if Broadway were producing musicals whose music were put on television and on the radio in some consistent way, we would have a broader spectrum audience across the country. Hi, my name is Lisa D'Souza, and I, I had a one-part question, but it's now become a two-part question. Uh, first of all, I was wondering, how much approximately does it take to run a show like Sideshow a week? Uh, our operating, our weekly operating is around 3.30. Okay. And then, it's our break-even. So, sorry. And then my second question was something that you said, Mr. Eisenberg, what you were just talking about. I mean, are there plans now to, to get Whitney Houston to record a song and put it out there to really, you know, expand Sideshow and... and there have been certainly a number of reviews that have referred to Whitney Houston, that Whitney Houston should look to Sideshow for some recordings, and Celine Dion and uh, Mariah Carey and 
Barbara. Yes, uh, we have uh, the the arranger Harold Wheel is a friend of Whitney Houston's. So, okay. but all of this gets very complicated because you only get people when they're you can only get them to record when they're recording an album. No one will make a single on their own anymore. So, if uh, Celine Dion has got one slot left, you hope that she will pick it up from here. Mariah Carey just finished an album, yeah. so she's done. Uh, it, it, you're moving into another world of the, the music world, which I absolutely have no knowledge of, but the little that I have uh, is that it's not as simple as I would like it to be, so that, hey, I have a great show, why don't you come and record it? They don't do that. Mm -hmm. They used to do that, when Broadway was exactly what George said. If you had a hit, what kind of fool am I from uh, Stop the World, bang, there were four recordings in five minutes. Right. Or, and, and Fair Lady had three hit songs on the hit parade. The hit One, parade, remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One quick working question. Uh, who keeps the show fresh? Who uh, gives notes when the show has a long run? Well, Bobby Longbottom is so dedicated that he hasn't missed but one performance. <laughs> it's like, I think he has an addiction. Uh, he can't stay away. If he stays away for a day, he's back the next day. But there's a stage manager, there are dance captains, there are these other jobs. What's each one's role? Quick. Excuse me? What's each one's role? Stage manager is uh, a, the, what we call the production manager who will run the show, call the show, call the cues, and also get somebody ultimately to do call the cues. So he watches and makes an evaluation of uh, performances. So you keep the show up. We have uh, a, an assistant director, Tom Kosis, who is working at the music hall at the moment, but he'll come back and he will come in and watch the show and call Bobby if he thinks it's, it's uh, slipping or, and give notes that night as well. Sometimes there's a note just because uh, something happened. It's not a criticism, it's just a reminder. And, uh, and also this is hard work and those kids go out there and sing their eyes out. So, Maybe somebody has to get a break. Could and we go happens, on with this afterward? I'm going to have out. to say thank you so much for being here. And we've been at the American Theatre Wing Seminars on working in the theatre at CUNY. And this has been an extraordinary panel that we've had here. It's the producing team of Sideshow, the wonderful show that is now on Broadway. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you, George White, for being our esteemed moderator. Bye-bye.
Are you going to be here this afternoon? Or do I need to go this afternoon? Oh, this is very good. This is very good.